the Weekly Appellate Report for March 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Today, we'll speak with Vanderbilt Law School professor Timothy Meyer about his very timely forthcoming paper on the constitutional underpinnings of trade policy and the growing separation of powers concerns that, he says, have resulted from Congress gradually, but now almost totally, yielding its constitutionally endowed power to conceive and enact trade law and policy over to the executive branch such that the president, whose express constitutional authority in the trade domain is fairly minimal, now nonetheless wields near plenary power and with it can unilaterally direct U.S. trade arrangements as a foreign policy tool up to and past the point of entering into an international trade war. Professor Meyer's paper traces historical forces that have caused, and in many instances recommended, Congress's gradual delegation of trade power, but he writes that present economic, social, and political dynamics suggest a need for Congress to reassert its authority and to lead on issues of trade in a way that incorporates and harmonizes the diverse domestic parochial interests that are more thoroughly considered and and synthesized in the legislative rather than the executive branch. Professor Meyer is an international economics law expert, previously served in the U.S. State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor, where he represented the U.S. in international commercial arbitration and other transactions, so he knows a thing or two about the benefits and drawbacks of the increasingly liberalized global trade community, and he keenly understands why the issue has become so salient in this moment and why its underlying constitutional dynamics are important to identify and perhaps recalibrate. Without any further preamble, then, I'm happy to welcome to the show Professor Timothy Meyer from Vanderbilt Law School. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Brian. So you recently posted a forthcoming paper. It will appear in the next edition of the California Law Review. It covers a very salient topic at the moment. It's entitled Trade and the Separation of Powers. Obviously, the themes in that paper are particularly important now and have been for the past several years at the forefront of our social and political dialogue the ideas of international trade and its impacts on international and, and particularly domestic economics. Um, before diving into the, the paper talking about the, the constitutional balance, who gets to really be in charge based on the constitution of how trade works, um, I just wanted to, to ask you a bit about the, the background of the paper and, and I suppose your own as well. You've been steeped yourself in uh, issues of international trade, both in uh, legal ac- academia and also in, in practice at the Department of State, I believe. And then as to this paper, how and when did the motivation for it form? Obviously, the events of just the past few days have provided a pretty sturdy news peg for it, but obviously it's, I imagine it's uh, been something you've been working on for a while now. Can you tell me about how it uh, came about? Sure. So, so just personally, um, I was a lawyer for the State Department um, from uh, 2008 to 2010, and so I worked on um, a variety of uh, international um, issues, including economic issues. Um, I handled a bunch of commercial arbitrations. Um, the paper is co-authored with my colleague Ganesh Siddharaman, um, who's also worked on um, international uh, trade issues and, and broader domestic economic issues on Capitol Hill um, for Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, so both of us have, um, from different points of view, um, uh, a sort of perspective on how international trade policy fits into broader economic policy, um, domestic and international. Um, so both of us have, have a kind of background in that. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that struck us with respect to this paper, uh, as we sort of looked at the way the 2016 um, presidential election shaped up, and in particular, the way that a lot of the commentary on um, these debates we're having in trade that we've been having for, for years now um, on trade is that they tend to focus a lot on, um, on the economic policy aspects specifically. They tend to ask you know, whether or not a particular uh, international trade policy is going to help or hurt some industry, whether it's going to help or hurt um, the nation in aggregate. Uh, and what was really lost from that conversation was the institutional point of view, which is who decides what kind of policies uh, make sense, what kind of policies we should pursue. Um, and when we started to look at that, we noticed that, you know, the U.S. Constitution assigns this power, the power over international trade policy, the power over uh, tariffs, um, exclusively to Congress. Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the power to uh, lay and collect uh, duties 
um, and uh, the power to regulate foreign commerce. Um, this is not really a shared power with the uh, with the president, um, and yet we are in a we find ourselves now in a political moment in which um, all of the conversation about international trade revolves around the presidency. So part of the idea with the paper was to chart how we got to that place. Um, and then part of it was a normative enterprise to evaluate um, the implications of of, uh, of our current uh, constitutional settlement with respect to trade powers. Yeah, as you say, um, absent from the conversation often as it pertains to international trade policy is the thought over what uh, constitutional assignment of power exists. Um, just think back to being in a constitutional law class, cases and issues of trade also are pretty absent there. I, I don't recall the question of who has the final say over trade policy really being ever um, brought up? No, I think that's right. So I teach constitutional law as well, and um, we spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, the domestic commerce clause uh, and what are the limits on, um, on that power as kind of a federalism issue. But we really don't spend a ton of time talking about, uh, talking about international powers. And um, uh, part of the reason for that, you know, we sort of argue in the paper is that in the 20th century, um, with the you, what you basically observe is the wholesale delegation of uh, international trade powers to the president, and that that occurs at the time um, that the in general that the courts and Congress begin to um, really adopt uh, sort of this view of the imperial presidency, and in particular, they start to view um, the president as having exceptional authorities. Uh, in the foreign affairs context that require um, extraordinary deference to the executive branch. Um, now, obviously, uh, the president has uh, constitutional authorities, um, the commander-in-chief authority, for instance, um, diplomatic uh, authorities under the Constitution that make the president um, the primary actor in, in international affairs. But, but really kind of starting in the, um, in particular in the 1930s, you start to see uh, this, uh, what's sometimes referred to as foreign affairs exceptionalism, this idea that we um, review and treat foreign affairs uh, cases totally differently um, and with much greater deference to the executive branch than we would treat uh, other kinds of uh, matters. And, you know, I think that explains to a large extent what you, just, what you just referenced, which is that we don't really see a ton of cases about international trade. There are some, uh, but we don't tend to focus on them because they fall within that um, within that line of cases where the answer uh, from the courts has tended to be, look, you know, the, the executive branch has authority here. This implicates foreign affairs. And, um, you know, unless Congress uh, steps in and does something, we're not, we the courts are not going to intervene. Okay, so we previewed a bit there the, the, the moment in history when the balance started to shift to the executive branch. Maybe just we get back up for a second and touch on the earlier piece of um, the descriptive section of, of your paper describing, you know, starting with the, the founding of the country, the, the Constitution being enacted and specifically giving uh, the, the legislative branch Congress um, pretty exclusive control over um, international commerce, um, and, and also as, as part of the analysis, looking at where the constitutional power is is, is vested, um, you note there are kind of two helpful ways to two sort of heuristics or paradigms to use to describe the uh, the, the different ways in which in international trade policy power has been wielded by either the, the Congress or the executive branch. Uh, these two paradigms um, we might describe just briefly. Um, one is a paradigm in which domestic and economic policy is at the forefront of considerations dealing with international trade policy. And when you're using that paradigm, you are principally talking about Congress being in control of, of um, the policy. And then the other paradigm is one uh, that we've described a bit now, um, where trade is all about foreign affairs. Could you just unpack those two paradigms that you reference a lot in your paper? Sure. So uh, the basic idea behind the domestic, what we refer to as the domestic economic paradigm, is that um, you can think about it as having um, what, what are the goals of international trade policy, uh, and then which uh, institution in the uh, in the government is both functionally and as a constitutional matter um, best suited to uh, to pursue those goals. And so when we talk about the domestic economic. Um, paradigm, uh, we're talking about the idea that, first of all, uh, Congress is constitutionally the uh, home for this authority, that um, the goals of uh, international trade policy are primarily in relation to domestic economic objectives, 
and that um, functionally Congress is the uh, institution that is going to be best uh, able to vindicate um, those uh, vindicate those goals. And you know what you saw at the beginning uh, of the of the country was um, under the Articles of Confederation that um, really the, the lack of a centralized um, federal power over, in particular, tariffs, which were the primary instrument of international trade policy at the time, um, was a, a huge a huge problem. And so Hamilton um, famously said that uh, you know the impost begat convention that the reason the Constitutional Convention occurred was in large part due to the need to have a uh, strong um, federal trade policy that was not subject to veto by the states. Um, and uh, that really leads directly to the uh, exclusive power that Congress has in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution to, um, to set tariffs uh, and then to regulate foreign commerce. Um, and throughout the, um, the 19th century into the 20th century, um, Congress uh, pretty directly used those powers. Um, they, they did not uh, delegate those powers in any sort of broad manner to the, uh, to the president. And they used them for a couple different purposes. Um, first of all, prior to the 16th Amendment and the creation of the income tax, the tariff was the primary vehicle for funding the federal government. So Congress was not going to delegate um, the power of the purse to the uh, executive branch. It was going to retain control over uh, tax rates, uh, effectively, that were going to allow Congress to pursue uh, its, whatever its domestic priorities were. And then relatedly, um, it was going to then use the revenue that was generated by these tariffs for redistribution within the country, right? And so if we think about um, what does Congress um, do just as a practical matter, well, what Congress does is co the members of Congress represent diverse constituencies from an incredibly large uh, and diverse country. Um, and what they do, the members of Congress, is they come together and they bargain over um, priorities that, you know, in California um, may have um, certain priorities, um, representatives from Tennessee may have certain priorities, and they come to some sort of accommodation. Um, and part of that accommodation is how you allocate federal revenue over those, over those competing priorities. Um, and all of that was intimately connected to international trade policy. So when Henry Clay... Uh, Henry Clay's um, America system was was largely about using um, the tariff, that is international trade policy, to redistribute, um, to develop an infrastructure program that was going to allow um, the western part of the United States to grow. Um, and um, so you you saw that there was this sort of very, very close connection uh, in the 19th century between um, the revenue role that the tariff played and um, the role that Congress played in redistributing um, wealth, uh, wealth around the country. The other thing that's worth noting about this period is that, um, that w what we now sort of call protectionist rationales, the idea that you would use tariffs to, um, protect, um, growing and developing what are sometimes called infant industries, um, from foreign competition, that that also had, um, had a lot more resonance than perhaps it does today. Um, so the, uh, particularly in the late 19th century, while industrialization was going on, um, people made arguments that, look, the tariff was um, was going to be uh, you know, a key instrument in, uh, in U.S. industrialization. Um, that's with respect to the goals. And then during this entire period, um, you can also observe constitutionally that Congress, and in particular the House of Representatives, was incredibly protective of its um, its role in uh, setting trade policy. And in particular, what the House of Representatives was worried about was that the Senate and the President would use the treaty power to um, establish um, international trade agreements that were going to set, uh, that might set tariff rates. And therefore, the House was going to lose um, its constitutional role in what was its most important taxing power. Um, and so the House zealously guarded its role in, uh, in setting uh, tariff rates and, and international trade policy. And that starts to change. Um, that it really changes wholesale in the 1930s. Now, prior to the 1930s, um, you do see delegations to the president, um, particularly in areas of national security. Indeed, as early as, as the 1790s, um, where there were uh, conflicts, for example, the neutrality crisis in the 1790s, um, Congress would delegate certain uh, international trade authorities to the president, um, and, and that continues throughout the 19th century. But what happened in the 1930s, and I imagine most of the listeners will be familiar with this, is, of course, it's the Great Depression. 
Um, and one of the factors that uh, is thought to have played a role in the Great Depression is the Smoot-Hawley tariff of uh, 1930, um, which was a Congress passed a, a series of um, uh, or, or passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which uh, involved um, particularly high tariffs um, that are thought to have led to um, other countries imposing uh, their own tariffs and protecting their own economies, which then led to a downward spiral that exacerbated uh, the Great Depression and ultimately played a role in, in leading to World War II. Um, and so in 1934, Congress passes a statute called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, which basically says, it's a very short statute, and it says the president can set tariffs um, and can reduce tariffs um, pursuant to reciprocal trade agreements that he may enter into with, with other countries. Um, and the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act basically becomes the foundation for this pivot where uh, instead of Congress making um, directly setting international trade policy, trade policy is primarily going to originate um, with, the, uh, with the presidency. Um, and it's going to be done uh, not domestically, but it's going to be done pursuant to international agreements. Right? That, the president's authority to set tariffs under the 1934 Act um, requires that he first enter into an international agreement. Um, and so uh, the international component all of a sudden becomes primary to, to uh, trade policy in a way that it didn't necessarily have to be when Congress was legislating. So um, Congress was not, uh, Congress didn't ignore um, reciprocity prior to the 1930s. It would legislate um, uh, with reciprocity in mind. Um, it would sometimes uh, ask the president to assess um, and, and adjust tariffs in response to uh, concerns about what other nations were doing. But the 1934 Act represents um, a just sort of a wholesale delegation to the president um, to uh, regulate uh, the tariff in light of um, in light of these foreign affairs concerns. And after the Second World War, uh, trade really becomes one of the key building blocks that the Truman administration and then later administrations use to um, to help rebuild uh, after the war and ultimately to win the Cold War. I'm, ha I'm happy to sort of unpack the legal regime there. But that's the, that's the thrust of the pivot, is that um, Congress in 1934 delegates uh, this authority to the uh, uh, to the president to make these agreements and then set domestic tariff rates in accordance with those international agreements. Uh, and from that point forward, um, Congress is not um, at a sort of wholesale level um, involved in, in directly legislating tariffs, tariff rates across the uh, across the economy. Yeah. So at at that stage, then the 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 paradigm becomes the um, more the the foreign affairs paradigm in, in which America's most uh, prominent foreign actor, the the president, becomes obviously central. And and undergirding that, as you say, is post World War II, America has emerged as perhaps the world's most powerful country. And and Definitely, at the time, um, a country whose production capacity was, you know, higher than any of the European countries that have been pretty ravaged, and and, and other countries around the world. So um, there were some other dynamics undergirding the idea that uh, trade could really be a, used as as a foreign policy tool to, I suppose, assert or continue to reinforce uh, American preeminence, and also maybe begin to set the rules. Of the road for international trade going forward for the rest of the the century, it seemed like there was a lot of sort of good reasons for that paradigm shift. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it made a lot of sense. Look, the the um, the period, the 1950s, 1960s. Um, this was a period of you know, as you noted, um, extraordinary prosperity in the United States. Um, so the United States globally was in a um, uh, was not one of these countries that had um, actually fought the war on its home soil. Um, but it was also, uh, we were in a position domestically where um, we were able to uh, actually use trade policy to, to, to open our uh, markets in a way that was everybody knew was going to um, adversely impact um, some sectors of the, of the economy. But our economy was growing so quickly that we were going to be able to uh, absorb, um, absorb those discrete losses um, in the name of... Um, broader economic growth uh, domestically, and ultimately um, helping our allies, uh, particularly Europe, uh, rebuild uh, rebuild after the war. So, you know, th there were some pretty key preconditions um, that, that made this kind of foreign affairs paradigm um, operate. The foreign affairs paradigm being the idea that um, trade policy is going to be run by the president um, as part of the larger foreign affairs 
um, portfolio and that the objectives um, were going to largely be in the service of these international these international objectives and um, and the preconditions were first of all that we did have um, extraordinary uh, domestic growth and, and economic prosperity um, and uh, you know and furthermore there were these really pressing foreign policy uh, concerns in particular the Cold War um, that that made uh, trade liberalization a really attractive tool of diplomacy. Um, and, you know, that really, that kind of paradigm really persists until the end of the Cold War, although by the 1970s, you're already starting to see, um, 1970s, early 1980s, you're starting to see um, some of the uh, cracks in that system um, because, you know, the United States... Uh, um, starts to it, it, uh, growth starts to slow down. We we see the emergence of these um, really roaring economies, particularly in Asia, um, and uh, the United States starts running uh, trade deficits. And of course, you know if you pay attention to the news, you know one of the things that President Trump um, is most uh, most upset about is U.S. trade deficits. Now, economists, of course, um, mostly think that trade deficits are not in and of themselves worrying uh, worth worrying about. But politically, they remain um, highly relevant, um, and, and you know, President Trump is, of course, not the first uh, by any means to invoke uh, trade deficits as a um, as a problem. And as soon as you start seeing those trade deficits uh, in the 1970s, um, you do start to see uh, some some erosion of um, uh, of sort of the, the domestic political buy-in to the to the trade liberalization project. At the same time that the U.S. is winning the Cold War, and so the broader foreign policy objectives to which trade liberalization has been tied um, start to become weaker. And, and that pattern, as you write in the paper, has, has largely continued the, the sort of economic or political underpinnings of allowing for that, that paradigm shift, to having the president direct international trade pretty altogether. Um, but notwithstanding that, the the habit or the pattern or the the fact of the executive branch controlling such policy has only sort of accelerated um, from you know, over the past 10, 20, 30 years with um, greater international trade policies being being founded and things like uh, f- several you know multi or um, bilateral free trade agreements like for example NAFTA and and a few other agreements between the U.S. and other countries. Um, can you talk about sort of that uh, mismatch between the accelerating uh, liberalization of trade and the uh, foreign policy paradigm and sort of its its lack of underpinning? Yeah, sure. So so um, let let's just start with the uh, the trajectory you described. Um, so um, from 1934 um, really until um, the 1970s, most of what trade policy was about was about uh, reducing tariffs. So it was primarily concerned with, you want to think about it as tax reduction. Um, starting, but, but, but by the 19, really by the 1960s, um, tariff rates have come down so much that it starts to become clear that w- what we often refer to as non-tariff barriers um, to trade are, um, are more relevant. Now, some of these non-tariff barriers are things like um, environmental regulation, including environmental regulations at the state level. Um, or health and safety requirements. Um, so if you have to, um, if, if you limit uh, access um, to your markets for instance for tuna that wasn't caught um, in a way that protects um, dolphins, or if you try to keep out um, certain uh, products um, such as asbestos because they're carcinogenic, um, those are trade barriers, um, but they're trade barriers that are justified by um, some other non trade-related reasons. And they don't come in the form of tariffs. They come in the form of, of regulation. So starting in the 1970s, um, the uh, trade negotiations start to focus uh, increasingly on those non-tariff barriers. Um, and um, the one of the things you see in, in 1974 in particular is that uh, Congress devises a system whereby it will uh, Agree to delegate to the president authority over non-tariff barriers as well um, to negotiate those agreements, and it works a little bit differently than tariffs. So, um, in tariffs, the president is just authorized to make agreements and then and then to set tariff rates in accordance with his agreements. Um, non-tariff barriers, the president negotiates um, the agreements, and he has to do so in accordance with negotiating objectives given to him by Congress. 
But as long as he does that, and of course he has a hand in determining what those negotiating priorities are, um, as long as he does that, Congress then agrees to give an up or down vote to um, a bill that will uh, amend whatever the non-tariff barriers are, so whatever our relevant domestic um, laws are that we're changing to accommodate our trading partners. I and mean, that, that procedure was originally known as Fast Track Authority. It's, today it's called Trade Promotion Authority. Um, and what it basically does is it um, short circuits the what would be the ordinary legislative process. So instead of Congress um, passing a bill um, where there's going to be um, ample time for floor debate and the possibility of amendment, um, what Congress does is it um, basically reviews the uh, bill that is drafted by the executive branch and it reviews it in uh, an expedited fashion and there's just a single up or down vote. Um, so this is a massive delegation of authority to the president over these over these non-tariff barriers. Now, at the same time in the 1980s, you see that uh, multilateral negotiations, particularly through um, the GATT, the General Agreement on uh, tr on Tariffs and Trade, um, they're starting to slow down a little bit, and so the government begins to pivot to doing these. Um, uh, bilateral and um, ulti ultimately sort of plurilateral agreements like NAFTA, where you're doing um, agreements uh, with a smaller number of parties, one, two, three, and you are um, covering um, much broader sectors of the economy. So in addition to covering trade in goods, um, these agreements will cover trade in services, like, you know, for instance, they could cover legal services. Um, and they're also um, going to cover uh, investment matters. Okay, that's um, capital flows and what kind of regulations, how can you regulate business um, if the business is owned, for instance, by a, uh, by a foreign company or a foreign national. Um, and so in the 1980s, um, and in particular with NAFTA um, in the early 1990s, you see um, the trade, uh, the sort of trade powers that the president is deploying um, expand dramatically. Um, by in, the, in, the, in the immediate post-war years, we were really talking about tariffs that were imposed at the border. And by the end of the Cold War, um, we're not just talking about tariffs imposed at the border. We're talking about the regulation of the services industry. We're talking about uh, environmental regulations, including at the state and local level, um, that are all going to be covered by, um, by these agreements. And the president is going to have extraordinary discretion in negotiating these agreements. Um, and they're going to be passed with, um, with fairly limited um, congressional um, congressional uh, review. Um, at the end of the Cold War, that starts to become more contentious. Um, and so in, in 1992, um, President Bush had negotiated and signed um, NAFTA. His administration was in the process of negotiating the creation of the World Trade Organization. Um, and those were uh, huge issues in the 1992 presidential election. The third party candidate, Ross Perot, described how uh, NAFTA was going to create what he called a giant sucking sound, where jobs were just going to be uh, outsourced uh, outsourced to Mexico. And what you see there is um, that Ross Perot kind of presaged the reemergence of this domestic economic concern, the idea that, hey, maybe we should be using trade policy to pursue domestic economic um, objectives, such as, for example, um, encouraging employment. Um, rather than these um, these foreign policy um, foreign policy objectives, um, and so what you what you've seen since uh, since 1992 is that the drumbeat that, that you know Ross Perot kind of picked up in the early 1990s has accelerated, um, but until recently it hadn't really um, caught on as either an organizing principle for trade policy. Nor had it resulted in Congress kind of reasserting itself um, in uh, in trade policy. The trade policy continued to be run by the president, um, and it continued to be run uh, at least ostensibly for uh, for foreign policy reasons. Yeah, as you say, the Trumpet has certainly gotten louder and, and and culminated in this most recent presidential election with the eventual prevailing candidate um, you know, making quite a bit of noise about the domestic concerns that international. Trade liberalization has given rise to, and um, you know, one of the primary candidates on the other side, Bernie Sanders, doing the same. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting about your paper is even that, um, notwithstanding that uh, the president is now at least voiced and seems to be acting on some concerns about international trade's effect on domestic policy. Um, you write that the concern and, and the, the dissatisfaction that the last several decades of policy has given rise to is not just based on the economic 
outcomes, some of the um, job dislocation and um, perhaps rising inequality caused by it. But but the actual just shift, the delegation of congressional authority from the legislative to the executive branch also, you say, is is part of the, the problem? Is that right? Yeah. So what happens is that, um, you know, Congress as an institution is well set up to reflect a diversity of, you know, again, this diversity of views across a, a large nation. Um, and so if Congress is the institution that sets trade policy, you're going to see, um, you know, uh, the um, manufacturing sector is going to have representatives, um, for example, for, you know, for instance, from Michigan and Ohio, they're going to advocate um, for it uh, for in Congress. Um, the environmental uh, community is going to have uh, representatives, for instance, from California that are going to advocate for it. Um, the uh, the pro free trade uh, camp is going to also have advocates. Um, you know, you could imagine um, representatives from New York uh, who are, um, you know, whose constituents are going to include uh, the financial community that that are really going to push for trade liberalization. So you're going to have um, just naturally from the way Congress is set up, you're going to get this diversity uh, of interests that you don't get with the uh, with the president. Um, we often hear it stated that the president, the rationale for uh, delegating authority to the president as a matter of economic policy, not, not related to foreign relations, is that the president is a national actor. He's elected uh, in a national election, and therefore he better uh, represents the uh, interests of the nation as a whole. And one of the things we say in the paper is that that is really not, uh, that's not descriptively accurate. Uh, the president is beholden to interest groups just in the same way that a member of Congress can be beholden to, to interest groups. Um, you see this uh, most immediately, I think, in, in some of the current administration's policies. Um, it is clear that uh, the steel industry, for instance, steel manufacturing, is um, getting policies uh, from the Trump administration that, uh, that, that favor it at the expense of other sectors of the American economy. Um, uh, but you saw this in earlier administrations too. There's nothing. There's nothing unique to uh, what the Trump administration is doing. So, um, the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership by the Obama administration um, included uh, efforts to advance, for example, intellectual property protections that were going to favor, um, for instance, the pharmaceutical sector. Um, so, presidents, when they make trade policy, when they're negotiating these trade agreements. They are very much engaged in um, deciding which sectors of the economy should should win and lose. And the entire structure, uh, the administrative structure within the executive branch of trade policy actually reflects that. So there are a series of advisory committees that Congress established in the middle of the, of the 20th century um, that give the president advice with respect to, to trade policy, um, trade policy generally and trade negotiations specifically. And um, those uh, organizations are uh, dominated by um, industry groups. Um, so industry groups, one of the major complaints that we heard from Congress um, during the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations um, involved uh, a um, claim that uh, there were about 600 uh, industry representatives that were allowed to see drafts of the negotiating text um, for the TPP but that congressional staffers um, were not actually allowed free access to the uh, to the agreement. Um, so they had to have a security clearance um, because the agreements were classified, and they had to, um, for a list of time, they had to be uh, escorted to view the text by a member of Congress, um, which is a huge burden on a member of Congress to have to uh, babysit their staffers while the staffer reviews a, a legal text. Um, so... Um, you know, the effect of that is that the president is, is making the same kind of distributive choices that um, we might expect Congress to make, but the president is making those choices without the kind of debate that we would observe in Congress, and the president is making those choices um, without the um, diversity of uh, pressures that um, we might expect to find in Congress. You know, all of those different interest groups, labor, environment, the pro-trade uh, sector, the finance community, the manufacturing community, all of them are going to be able to find some member of Congress who's going to carry the water for them, but they're not all going to be able to necessarily uh, access um, the executive branch in the same way. So the shift from um, Congress to the executive branch, um, we argue in the paper, is what it does is it actually privileges certain groups um, in society over other groups um, because institutionally 
the presidency is just not as accessible uh, as Congress. It may be able to make trade policy faster um, because it doesn't have to have these up or down votes. You know, one of the things we know about Congress is Congress doesn't do things quickly. Um, but um, part of what we're trying to show in the paper is that uh, it's not the case that the president is some benevolent national actor. The president is making the same kinds of distributive trade-offs that Congress would make. And I think that's especially clear when you look at um, what President Trump has done uh, since taking office. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the speed at which Congress might act as compared to the speed at which a the, the executive branch can move. It's certainly one of the reasons that the executive branch tends to be our representative on on the world stage. That that branch's ability to um, to move more quickly without um, long legislative debates and and in, in addition to maybe just Congress taking a while to to reach a decision. Do you think, to any extent, the idea that Congress can sort of harmonize rationally and, and, and effectively the national interest is in any sense a sort of overly rosy view at, at this moment. And in many ways, it seems like you know, the Congress may often act in ways beneficial to, to one, you know, just the, the, the prevailing party within, within it, uh, and, and less so in a way that really sort of synthesizes all the competing different local parochial interests that, that you describe. Uh, to output something that's uh, ideally engineered to, to do the most domestic benefit. So even if Congress was sort of more in the driver's seat here, um, do, you, do you think that it in fact could do a better job of representing the, the national uh, interest in, in this area of trade policy? Sure. So I, I, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, it's worth being clear that we do not have a rosy view of Congress. Um, so we do not have a view of Congress that, that says that members of Congress are going to act uh, in, the, you know, in some sense of the national interest. Um, nor, I think, do, would we say that um, when Congress takes up any particular bill, be it a, a trade bill or, or some other bill, um, that there aren't going to be winners and losers. Um, so that is definitely going to happen in Congress. Um, our point is really about, um, uh, as a relative institutional point, which is that uh, those things, it's often said in the trade literature that, that those um, drawbacks that you just alluded to um, with Congress, that Congress is um, uh, going to pick winners and losers, that it's going to do so in a way that privileges uh, particular interests at the expense of others, um, the, you know, the expression we often use is rent-seeking, right? That Congress is just going to be uh, this, uh, this site of, of uh, extraordinary rent-seeking and lobbying um, that's going to privilege special interests. Um, I don't think we disagree that that's going to happen in Congress. Our point is that it's not any better with the presidency, and in some ways it's worse. Um, and it's worse um, because just procedurally, um, fewer groups are going to have the opportunity to engage in that lobbying. Um, that is going to go on regardless of whether trade policy is made in the executive branch or made on, on Capitol Hill. Um, so I, so it's, it's worth clarifying, you know, we do not um, necessarily think that if you, if Congress reasserted itself, that the result would be, um, it, you know, some sort of uh, trade policy that every American is going to, um, uh, is going to be their first best uh, trade policy, if you will. Um, that's, that, that isn't what would happen. But it would ensure um, a couple of things, right? So the first thing it would ensure is just, just procedurally, again, that uh, more interest groups would have access to the policymaking process. They might not win, okay? You can't ensure particular outcomes, but they're going to have access to the process. And the second thing is that, you know, if you have to um, get a trade policy through Congress, um, it's definitely the case that, you know, so if Congress had been more actively involved in um, actually directly setting trade policy from the 1970s to, to today, it's definitely the case that we would have seen, I think, less trade liberalization. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, Congress is just not going to liberalize trade as quickly as the, as the president is. But you probably would have also ended up with a trade policy that um, both uh, didn't result in the kinds of inequal economic inequality that we observe, and also a trade policy that politically enjoyed greater support. Um, the nature of having to get things through uh, Congress is that most of what Congress does uh, enjoys pretty broad support. Now, obviously, we can pick um, particular issues that don't, um, where they are highly partisan. 
Um, but if you look at sort of the body of, of what Congress does, um, you know, the hundreds of bills that, a, that a, you know, a Congress over the course of two years will pass, you know, most of them enjoy pretty broad support um, that reflects uh, the bargaining process that does bring multiple constituencies um, around. Um, and that's just not a bargaining process that the executive branch has to, uh, has to engage in in the same way. Um, the other thing you mentioned is uh, that in foreign affairs, we think the president is best able to act in dealing with other countries. So this, is, this isn't about our domestic process, but it's about um, negotiations with other countries. It's just better to have a single uh, voice that can um, make a decision and proceed on the basis of that decision. Um, and you know, underlying that is this notion that we really, when dealing with other countries, we need to be able to act quickly. Um, and oftentimes we need to be able to act uh, potentially in secret um, because there's, there's some uh, particularly important uh, uh, secrecy serves some important value by sort of allowing the government to, to uh, vindicate um, policy goals that couldn't be vindicated if you had to make policy in public. Um, and we don't think that that um, really holds in the trade context. So those may be compelling rationales in other contexts, for example, um, military uh, matters. But economic regulation, um, it's not obvious that you need to uh, have a trade agreement this year as opposed to next year. Um, and uh, it's not obvious what value is served by secrecy. So, you know, when um, Congress debates uh, overhauling just the income tax, um, this does not, uh, this is not something that we think needs to be classified for national security reasons. So why, uh, would you classify another portion, negotiations over another portion of the tax code, you know, tariff rates? Um, that's effectively what's happening. You're treating the income tax as domestic economic policy that is subject to ordinary, um, transparency norms, um, about how we make, uh, economic policy. But taxes that are imposed on products coming into the country are, uh, are treated as needing to be secret um, because they're simply because they are negotiated with foreign countries. Um, and we just don't really see a compelling uh, compelling rationale for that. These are taxes um, and taxes can be debated um, as, you know, they can be debated in Congress, they can be debated uh, in public and the way in which our government officials are thinking about those things is, is something that, um, that uh, we probably should be having greater discussions about while the decisions are being uh, formulated rather than only after they've been made. You mentioned that we're Congress more in control of the, the international trade policy that's been developed over the past generation. Uh, we might have seen less trade liberalization. Uh, one sort of countervailing argument that I think you cite in your paper is that you know, it seems largely undisputed that international uh, trade liberalization does raise national wealth in the aggregate, even if that uh, raising of wealth isn't sort of ideally distributed throughout an individual country. Um, right. And so that argument might follow with the thought that why don't we continue to, to complete trade deals of this nature and then as a second step just have Congress do some other sorts of policy like tax policy or other um, policies that, that could do the sort of the fair redistribution at, at that stage. But you say that's not really an ideal approach, right? Yeah, sure. So um, I should say at the outset that, you know, since, since the uh, end of the uh, Cold War, this uh, process that you just described has become the primary economic argument for trade liberalization. Um, you know, I think I don't have any quarrel with the idea that um, in an ideal world, in you know, what we might call a first best world, that we would want to have um, trade liberalization that's going to lead to national growth uh, and then have policies um, that uh, would redistribute or ensure an equitable distribution um, of those gains. Um, trade liberalization is itself inherently distributional. Uh, so. If you uh, reduce trade barriers, um, we are going to observe, I think economists have, have shown, we will observe overall growth in the, uh, in the national economy. But there are clearly some communities that are going to lose um, from that, uh, from those policies. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we've seen this and we're, we, we've, there's been an increasing amount of labor market data that has shown um, that particularly after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, that um, communities that rely on the manufacturing uh, sector have just suffered uh, extraordinary economic losses. Um, those losses occur uh, in um, terms of job losses, 
But they also occur in, um, because the jobs that replace those job losses are uh, often jobs that don't pay as well. Um, they don't necessarily have as many hours involved in the work, and they often don't have the same kinds of benefits. Um, one of the objections that you often hear uh, today to the notion that um, we need to have redistribution to deal with trade is, is, look, unemployment is really low. Unemployment is hovering a little over 4%. That means, basically, that we're not seeing these kinds of job losses. Uh, and that basically just doesn't bear out if you look at the kinds of jobs that a lot of people uh, are working in, particularly in these um, communities that have historically been dependent on manufacturing. Again, those, those jobs that um, those folks are taking tend to not be of the same quality uh, as the jobs that um, have been uh, have been moved overseas. Um, so, you know, if we, if we don't have the kinds of redistribution, if the second step of that process doesn't ever happen, then there's going to be demand from voters to use trade policy to um, ensure a dis uh, an equitable distribution. And the 2016 presidential election, I think, showcased um, that demand. Um, of course, President Trump um, raised this concern, as you noted, uh, Senator Sanders on the Democratic side did. But it's worth noting that Secretary Clinton also eventually embraced this idea. She abandoned um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is an agreement she'd supported while she was Secretary of State. Um, and so, the, you know, the notion that trade policy itself needs to be about um, distributional considerations, given that um, we don't deal with distributional considerations effectively outside of trade policy is, um, I think, one that has gotten a lot of currency on, on both sides of the aisle. And then and it's just worth noting that institutionally, um, which institution is best suited to deal with those distributional issues? It's going to be Congress. Um, the framers of the Constitution clearly envisioned trade policy being set by Congress, you know, in large part because Congress was going to be able to then use trade policy to ensure an equitable distribution of the um, uh, of the gains that the nation um, enjoys from uh, from all economic activity, including uh, uh, trade liberalization. Then, just to, to wrap up, safe to say, you, you don't think the problem is fully solved by having a president ascend to to power, principally concerned with with using trade in a more redistributive manner. Um, so. Uh, that, is that sort of a first step? Is it a, a half solution? Where uh, are we sort of now um, and, and where do you think the ideal situation uh, develops? So uh, I, I don't think that that's right. So I think a, a president who pursues um, distributional considerations, um, as President Trump is certainly doing, uh, is not going to be, um, it's not going to make us better off as opposed to an engaged Congress. Um, and uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, so the first, which I've already uh, alluded to, is just that the kinds of interests that are going to um, have access to uh, the executive branch is just not as broad as we would like. Um, and uh, you're going to have a much broader set of interests that are going to have access to policy making and policies made uh, in Congress. Um, the, the second thing, though, is that um, we have this question that is, I think, very front and center today uh, that has to do with um, the correct allocation of uh, power constitutionally and as a matter of uh, statutory law to, to start a trade war. Um, and the, you know, one of the things we've seen um, in the last three months, the beginning of the calendar year, is that the Trump administration has taken a series of actions that have uh, basically been targeted at China. Um, and they are, the Trump administration, starting, uh, I think, what we might refer to as a trade war with, uh, with China by imposing uh, tariffs on solar cells from China, on steel and aluminum. And most of those steel tariffs turn out not to hit China directly, but, but the ultimate goal is to um, respond to overcapacity in China for the production of steel. And then um, just uh, on March 22nd, uh, you know, the president announced that he was going to impose um, up to $60 billion of new tariffs on a variety of, uh, of Chinese products in response to um, what he views as uh, determined as unjustifiable and uh, unreasonable um, Chinese trade practices. Um, so uh, those series of actions... Um, at no point did they require any buy-in from Congress. Congress had to never at any point had to take any uh, affirmative steps to authorize uh, the president to take those discrete actions. And the reason is because 
Congress had already delegated in, in these uh, trade laws passed over the course of the 20th century all of the authority the president needed to, to initiate this trade war. And the president has authority to make this, uh, these, these measures, most of them, last for as long as he would like. So the steel and aluminum tariffs that were uh, imposed at the beginning of March, um, those tariffs do not have a, uh, a timeline. The statute does not, tell, uh, does not impose limits on how long the president can impose um, those particular tariffs. The new tariffs that were announced yesterday, similarly, um, the president uh, is both relatively unconstrained in the kinds of uh, measures he would impose, um, tariffs versus, for instance, quotas, as well as the size of the tariffs, uh, and there are no limitations on how long um, the president can impose those for. Um, in this sense, you know, these trade wars look a little bit like um, actual wars. Um, so we've had a long debate in uh, constitutional debate about the correct allocation of uh, war powers as between the president and Congress. When does the president, who controls the uh, military as commander-in-chief, when does he need congressional authorization before um, engaging in uh, engaging in hostilities? Um, and we have a similar kind of question in the trade wars context. The constitutional question is not uh, is not as hard to answer. The answer is constitutional authority here rests with Congress. If Congress uh, wants to take action, Congress uh, Congress can take action. But um, in the absence of congressional uh, action to override the president's actions, um, the president has um, pretty much carte blanche to use the various authorities Congress has given him to uh, to initiate uh, trade conflicts. Um, and those trade conflicts are potentially very destructive to the economy. There will clearly be losses to the American economy. China has announced that it's going to impose up to uh, $3 billion of retaliatory tariffs. Um, it's the, the steel tariffs are still in the process of shaking out what kind of exemptions there are going to be. Um, but the European Union is talking about uh, retaliatory tariffs um, if they don't get an exemption from the steel tariffs. Um, and those are going to have real consequences for the American economy. And just as a constitutional um, uh, point, we would like uh, those costs before our nation incurs those very significant nationwide costs. We'd like to have um, broader buy-in, uh, and that broader buy-in comes from uh, the affirmative engagement of, of Congress. Okay, I mean, it certainly feels like we're standing at the, the beginning of this uh, sort of constitutional, political, uh, social debate about where these powers lie and who should wield them. So uh, your, your contribution to the doctrine is certainly certainly timely and well-needed. Um, Professor Timothy Meyer from Vanderbilt Law School, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast to chat about it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And with that, our program for March 30th, 2018 is complete. Thanks much for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. A couple of reminders here at the close. Don't forget to find us and like us on Twitter. Our two locations there are at LA Daily Journal and at SF Daily Journal. And keep your eyes peeled as very soon this podcast will be available via iTunes through your podcast app. So it should be a bit more easy to find and listen to. Also, don't forget that listeners are easily able to get one participatory hour of CLE credit for having tuned in to the show. Just find a short true-false test that's appended to this episode on our site at dailyjournal.com. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>